Blog Talk Radio. Today on Backroom Politics, the Supremes haven't seen this much press since Motown. Speaking of which, the Supremes issue a ruling of denying affirmative action and upholds a ban in Michigan. We talk campaign finance and the Supreme Court ruling taking down contribution caps. The politics of the XL pipeline, why has completion eluded both sides of the aisle? President Bush authorizes the release of presidential records. Is this a new age of transparency or a lesson to be learned? And calls for Justice Ginsburg to retire come from liberals. Should the justices use politics as a consideration for retirement? This and tell me a story today on Backroom Politics. Live from Shelley's Backroom. 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. This is Backroom Politics. To join the discussion, you can call toll-free 1-877-662-3713. And now, the moderator of Backroom Politics, Justin Russell. And it's Tuesday here in Washington, D.C., our nation's capital. That means it's time for the best political talk show you've never heard of. It's time for Backroom Politics Live on Blog Talk Radio from Shelley's Backroom, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. Joining me as they do every Tuesday to my left, he is the former eight-term member of Congress representing the 2nd Congressional District of Washington State. He is Congressman Al Swift. Hello, Congressman Al. Hello, I'm delighted to be here. Oh, good to have you. And to my 11 o'clock across the table, he is the former floor chief for then Congressman Gerald R. Ford, the former vice president of government affairs for the National Broadcasting Corporation. He is the Honorable Bob Hines. Hello, Bob. Hi, Justin. Glad to be here. Oh, good to have you. And to my 1 o'clock across the table, she is the former House Staff Counsel for the Homeland Security Committee under Benny Thompson, Obama appointee as General Counsel to the Maritime Administration. She is the Honorable Denise Krep. Hello, Denise. Hello, Justin. And joining me to my right, he is the six foot one forward and center from Provona College. He is also a longtime set of staffer and a very distinguished fellow from the Stimson Center. He is the incredible Alan Moore. Hello, Alan. Thank you for acknowledging my incredibleness. Oh, my God. <laughs> didn't, know you had, didn't know you had a slam dunk in you. That's amazing. And joining us today for the show, he is a very special guest. We are honored to have him. He is the former minority leader of the Republican Party in Congress. He is the former congressman from Peoria, Illinois, representing the great state of Illinois. He is the Honorable Congressman Robert Henry Michael. Bob, thanks for coming in. This is an honor. Well, thank you, Bob. The uh, Heinz, of course, has been bugging me for quite some time. He says, you ought to come down and kick us along around with us. Oh, bit, you know? oh, we're so glad to have you. And we have got a show for you to be a part of today, Mr. Minority Leader. We have got so much going on. First, we're going to start off with the news breaking today out of the Supreme Court. There's a lot of news we're going to be talking about the Supreme Court today. But the big one right now is in a 6-2 to two surprise ruling. The Supreme Court has upheld the state of Michigan ban on affirmative action, basically eliminating affirmative action in anything going on in state, 
politics, anything in state government, particularly affirmative action as it relates to the university system. But a huge, huge blow to affirmative action supporters. Uh, this today, this ruling today, uh, caught a lot of people by surprise. It uh, upheld the constitutional amendment that the voters approved back in 2006, banning preferential treatment based on race, gender, ethnicity, or, nor or national mm -hmm. origin. Uh, Alan Moore, I want to start with you. Uh, a lot of people knew that the ruling was going to come out today, but nobody saw the ruling as far as let alone a 6-2 to two vote. But a lot of people didn't see the Supreme Court upholding the ban. Was this a surprise to you? No. The only surprise was that, uh, that Justice Breyer joined the majority. Uh, Justice Kagan uh, recused herself because she presumably was involved when she was still in the administration. So it was the five you might have predicted that would have voted this way, plus Breyer. Um, I, I think it's not correct to, to say they've banned affirmative action. It's like saying the Senate banned the filibuster. Um, they changed the rules. And what they did in this case, but, but you can still have affirmative action. You cannot have affirmative action based on race or gender or ethnicity or national origin. You can still have affirmative action based on geography within the state. Lots of states divvy up the spots in state universities. You can have affirmative action based on on means of on income on on family means you can say we're going to designate certain number of slots for poorer people um so having said that uh it's a significant uh, uh result but remember what they're doing is saying that the people of michigan had a vote they decided what they decided was not unconstitutional. But, you know, but Alan, on your comment, though, when, when we say it doesn't necessarily ban affirmative action, the constitutional amendment that the voters in Michigan passed back in 2006, and it was, it was largely based on the situation at the University of Michigan and Michigan State University, where they said, look, we are literally giving billets to applicants that normally would not qualify it is no longer based on uh, it's no longer based on qualification it's based on race we felt that we had to give it to a member of the African American community or the Asian community or a female or otherwise it, it, this does by all rights eliminate the ability and gives the right to the states to say we want no part of affirmative action we, we want no part of using race as a determinant, I ignoring all other factors. They can have other kinds of affirmative action. Admittedly, uh, affirmative action based on race has been the predominant uh, use of that term, and it is the one that's been most used, it's been most controversial, but there are, as I say, it's race, it's gender. There was a time when one needed to think about opening up slots to females. Now we're moving in a direction where the men are going to be standing up saying, we've got less and less and less of the, the slots in proportion to, uh, to the, the male of the population. We need affirmative action for men. This would say, nope, now, doesn't just, work. You, now, can't, you can't do that. Now, so, Den Denise, Justice Sotomayor read for the minority. Uh, there were two, Justice Ginsburg and Justice Sotomayor. Justice Sotomayor read and I quote, 
The stark reality is that race still matters. The way to stop discrimination on the basis of race is to speak openly and candidly on the subject of race and to apply the Constitution with eyes open to the unfortunate effects of centuries of racial discrimination, unquote. She's basically saying that you may not be, you, the way we read it is, race is still a problem here in the United States. Race is going to continue to be a problem. And if there is no affirmative action, it still poses a detrimental effect on those who have been segregated or discriminated against previously. Yes, and I, and I agree with her. I, I was at a conference, that's why I wasn't here two weeks ago, Colorado Springs at the Air Force Academy. And uh, one evening I was asked to grade student papers. And because they were all, um, the West Point students had come in and Air Force students had come in. And I went around and I looked and not a single one was, was submitted by a female cadet. Not only was there not a single one by a female cadet, there wasn't a single one by minority students. So I didn't see any African Americans, Asians, Hispanics. I went to the professor and I said, so, you know, this is a Homeland Security Conference. Where is everybody? Why am I looking at a very monolithic population? And the response I got back was, well, this is my student body. To me, and, and I have fought being a token my entire life, you don't want to focus on people being tokens. What you do want to focus on is people being inclusive. And if you're looking and you're putting people in a situation, which I was in at Colorado Springs with the Air Force, and there's nobody who looked like me, and there's only folks looking like the same one after another, there is a problem. And we have to be able to address that. And that's what she was talking about, is that race still matters, race is still an issue, and you can't just say, we're going to go away with it. But Bob Michael, when we look at what we read and what was heard from the dissent today through Justice Sotomayor, also with Justice Ginsburg, the majority, the six justices that voted to rule against affirmative action, Justice Kennedy read for the affirmative saying, quote, this court has rejected the assumption that members of the same racial group, regardless of their age, education, economic status, or the community in which they live, think alike, share the same political interests, and will prefer the same candidates at the polls. He continued, quote, in a society in which those racial lines are becoming more blurred, the attempt to define race-based categories also raises serious questions of its own. That's a very stark ruling by Justice Kennedy and the majority in this one. Yeah, quite different. and uh, It's really quite different in a sense to, from what we've been hearing in, in the past. And uh, it'll be interesting to see how this, how this one unfolds, really, because uh, I think Frankly, if I were betting on it, I would have thought that that uh, the decision would have gone the other way. Uh, Denise, you disagree. I, I think this is consistent with this court. I, I, they've given us hints that this is where they are heading. It's not a decision that I support, but they've definitely given us hints. And you know, let's talk about race. And I'll, I'll be, you know, I went to a second conference. Um, I was in New Orleans, 450 people. I looked down the audience. About 30 percent were. Female, five. I counted five African Americans. Everybody else was white. Do you know where the African Americans were? They were serving us. Yeah, but so let, let's be honest about what race looks like in some parts of this country. Okay, it's but not an easy thing to answer. Well, let me jump on that though, Bob Hines. Uh, when when we look at the demographics of today's America, the the white sort of majority is losing ground. It looks like now that the highest 
the highest growth population and could soon be a majority in this country are Hispanic. The Asian community is growing at exponential numbers. The quote-unquote white majority is being blurred out by other, other racial groups and other profiles. Does this court see, in your opinion, just reading off what you know today, does the court take that into consideration of saying, look, it's a different America than it was, let's say, 50 years ago or 75 years ago? Well, I don't know whether the court took it into account itself, but I suspect they must have. The fact of the matter is, the changes in the demography of the United States is just is, is a continuous change, and it's all for the better. You know, one of the great geniuses of this country, in my mind, is that unlike the Germans or the French or the Italians or the Spanish, we don't come from, we, we, we came to a, Americans came to a, a land that nobody was in practically, by and large. There were very few Indians, you think about it. There weren't that many. The fact of the matter is, all these people from different countries who wanted to have a better life discovered that America was a place to do it. And when you come over here, there's all these different, uh, different groups. None of them is in charge. None of them, no religion is, is the one religion. Uh, everything goes. Everybody's mixed up. We are a nation of mongrels, and that's a compliment to the United States. And I think this is a ruling that, is, that goes in that line. Congressman Al. Let me talk for a little while. I got a, I, I got, I got a little bit to say on this topic. There are two major decisions made in this country with regard to race that were extraordinarily controversial. One was busing, and this one. Now, if you stop and really think about it, I'm a liberal, I supported both of them wholeheartedly because I didn't see anything else that could be done. But I have always felt that both were lame ways of doing it. It's just that nobody could think of or could pass something else that was maybe fairer, more balanced. And I believed that the situation that we had in this country with our minorities was such that we needed to do something. So I supported these two kind of weak, contradictory kinds of things because there was nothing else. And it, so what, what I think it t teaches the United States is when you come up with a really tough issue, it is far better to grit your teeth, get your guts going, and deal with it rather than run away from it and let something else happen, the courts do it or what have you, and end up with a uh, illogical, uh, unfair uh, solution to what is a real problem that needs to be addressed. Uh, so I wanted to say that. I wanted to say one other thing, and I have completely forgotten. Well, that's good. Was. That's good. Alan Moore. I, I'll remember you'll it. You'll remember it, and you'll, yeah. we'll get back to you, Congressman. No, you'll, you, will, you will definitely remember it. Um, it, it. One way to think about affirmative action based solely on race. Remember, we went through a period where we have we actually had numeral, numerical quotas that, that you had to fill a certain number of slots with, with people of a particular race. And then that was pretty much discredited and eliminated. And then the question was, can we have special consideration for uh, people of, a, of, a, of an underrepresented race, for example, in a, in a larger population? 
And here's the rub. Here's the situation you get into when it's simply race and nothing else. You are giving spots at the University of Michigan, let's say, to, to the son of the children of a, a Bill Cosby, who have been denied very little in their lives, certainly not from an economic training, et cetera, standpoint, ahead of a poor white child who grew up in a trailer. Now, let's face it, there are a lot more poor African-American kids in America than there are white Americans, but a lot of black conservatives say, don't make it about race, make it about need, about need, means, family income, assets. You'll pick up plenty of blacks if you go that way, but it won't be the simple uh, surrogate of race. Not that race is easy, as Bob has, has pointed out, with, with, race, with racial, uh, with intermarriage racial, racial mixing, it's pretty hard to sometimes to decide who is what, what particular race. But, but that's, that's an issue that, bo that has bothered many blacks as well as whites, this notion that simply by being black, you get, a, you, you get a leg up, as opposed to simply being poor, you get a leg up. And this doesn't speak to that poor issue. That is still it, it, open it season for affirmative action. It, it doesn't. But, but Congressman Michael, you know, when we look at, like, let's say the Asian community, the Asian community is still a minority. They still were considered part of affirmative action. Uh, they still get preferential treatment in SBA programs and in government contracts, et cetera. But when you look at the performance standards of many in the Asian community, there are some that support this ban on affirmative action saying, look, if you give them a leg up based on their race, Asian, and their performance standards high, highly outperform those of whites, blacks, and Hispanics, they're going to be the ones that you're going to admit into college, leaving those other coveted slots to the other lesser performing groups. That seems to be something to at least consider when looking at this argument, is it not? Well, I think it's going to take some time to shake out, quite frankly, because uh, I don't, as I said, I don't think that this, was, this kind of a decision was really expected. And uh, it'll, uh, it'll provoke some good discussion, I'll tell you, around uh, in, in all the groups. Well, it'll give the it'll give the Ku Klux Klan a different group to be mad about. <laughs> <laughs> Astute as always, Congressman. Well, Congressman, this a, a kind <laughs> comment to those who support the, the Ku Klux Klan. Yeah. yeah, no, of oh, course. Oh, the decision. Okay, that's so. But Congressman Michael, obviously, this decision is going to resonate to Congress. Do you think that the liberals in Congress are going to take this? as a method or a, 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 uh, a marching sign that says, look, we've got to change something constitutional? I don't look for that. I don't really look for that to happen. Really? Uh, right. Yeah, uh, just the politics of the year and what's happened thus far. I, I would be very doubtful in the, uh, that uh, the more liberal members of the House would pick up the cudgel and, and go to bat. Congressman Al, is this a is this a blow to liberals in midterms this year? Well, I, you know, my fellow liberals, bless their hearts. They, they, <laughs> <laughs> That's a southern euphemism for something else. Yeah, yeah. They, 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 they 
sometimes do the dumbest things. <laughs> I, I, I think, as I said, I think that affirmative action was an imperfect way to approach it in the first place. What I would hope the liberals would do is start trying to figure out another way to achieve the goal that is uh, is less inconsistent and less appearance of, of, of unfairness to other other groups. Uh, will they do that? Uh, probably not. They probably dig their feet in and insist on on this. All right, but but Denise, I got a question for you though. Is you know in in all this discussion, nobody's talked about the one way to get the minorities that were part of affirmative action the ability to be competitive. Nobody talks about educational programs. Nobody talks about subsidies into rural and under underfunded areas of cities. I mean this came out of this came out of Michigan. You can talk about Detroit as much as you can talk about parts of Escanaba up in the Upper Peninsula. Nobody's talked about that. Is, is this something that may spark the discussion of, hey, we've got to stop making them victims, we've got to start making them competitive? Well, first of all, nobody is a victim. But what we're having a problem with is that you don't just suddenly you know, appear in college with knowledge. It starts at the pre-K level, and what I'm seeing, and I'm a mother of a kindergartner and a fourth grader, is that there is a dramatic difference between students who have a pre-K-3 and a pre-K-4 education going into kindergarten versus those that don't. I mean, there are studies that talk about the educational benefits of getting kids in earlier, you know, the, the socializing, their ability to maneuver their, their fingers, their cognitive abilities. It all starts between zero and five. And we need to make sure that people, more people, have the ability to get their kids in at the pre-K level and then following it through from kindergarten up to the senior level in high school. And that's not happening right now. And I can say in some places, especially here in the District of Columbia, they're having problems with that one. Bob Hines. Well, we were just we're talking here is exactly what I think needs to be done. And I think if, if there is a recognition, not just with the liberals, but I think most Republicans would say, if we can find a way to improve educational systems, if we can find a way to have two-parent families, if we can find a way to do all kinds of things that need to be done, we should work together to do it. And this, this decision is an is a, is a opportunity for a whole lot of people to rethink a little bit of what they need to do, because this is a very important situation. We need to get young people better educated, moving up the ladder, it's what we, the American way has always been what it's always been the way it has been. We should make sure that we continue to do it. Congressman now. I don't mean to throw a stink bomb in the middle of this discussion, but it <laughs> seems to me that what we talked about, all the things that need to be done were going to be done under the Great Society. Interesting. Interesting we, point. We uh, Head Start was Cheed still around. <clears throat> uh, there are a couple of things that are still around, but Lyndon Johnson, uh, bless his heart, uh, <laughs> was was uh, so eager to get everything going at once that he he stumbled a lot getting some of those programs out of the gate, and he made them look bad. And uh, it brought the, those that were opponents, gave them good reason to oppose and so forth. 
And if he'd let Sergeant Shriver, you know, run that thing at, at a normal pace instead of the hurry up, hurry up, do it tomorrow, uh, do it today, uh, I, th I think we may have gone farther with those programs which tend to raise everybody, including the poor uh, and the ill-educated. Alan Moore. Yeah, I want to want to add to what 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 Al is saying because I, I I agree with him that at least to the degree that there's nothing new here and it's not that no one is talking about this. People have been talking about this since before Lyndon Johnson, which helped prompt him to take these initiatives. And we spend hundreds of billions of dollars on these things. The role of the federal government in education has changed enormously since LBJ. Once upon a time in America, it was, schools were all locally funded, and then the states would get in to help equalize spending. And now the feds, I think, contribute something on the order of about a third of the costs of, of uh, K through 12 or pre-K through 12 education, plus feeding programs, um, food stamps for families. I mean, there's a whole bunch of social determinants that have that have occurred, the breakup of a family, the rise of single-parent family, kids in, in, uh, uh, in, in homes without any intellectual stimulation. It's not that no one's talking about it. Um, there's a lot of talk going on. That was a key issue in the mayoral race in, in, in New York City. But what we're talking about here is, is can 60% of the people of, of Michigan, in a referendum, but the, the, the point of which was clear, um, vote in a particular way and have that be uh, upheld as constitutional. And the court said, yep, it doesn't mean, by the way, as I said before, that there aren't some other affirmative action things that can occur, but it also doesn't eliminate race entirely as a factor. There were a couple of earlier court decisions that said, you can take race into account it cannot be the only factor, but, and you have to defend the way you use it if you're challenged. But some some legal analysts say that this case, Shoot versus the Coalition to Defend Affirmative Action, trumps the other rulings. That this is the benchmark now for it, it basically says, according to and even even Justice Breyer said in his own uh, in his own affirmative. Right up, Justice Breyer, a Democratic liberal on the court, says and agrees that this should be a state issue. He takes the Federalist position. Well, and that's what it is. This, this is a question about a referendum in Michigan decided by around the, the, was 58 or 60 percent. 58 vote, to 42 vote, or 47. Vote, vote, voted in favor. And is, is it legal? Is it constitutional? It doesn't speak to the broader issue that's going to affect every state. It's going to get people's attention. And if they want to have a referendum in another place or pass a law in another place, they're going to look closely at this particular law. I'm not saying it's irrelevant, but it deals with a referendum in Michigan of some years ago. Congressman Al. Well, if, if I could talk to my fellow liberals at this point, <clears throat> I would say, uh, look, stop arguing about this. Uh, affirmative action for all intents and purposes is not going to solve the problem that we see here. And I would tell my conservative friends, fight's over, you can stop, 
you know, uh, and now will you join me in trying to figure out something that will work? You see, and and, and it's possible. I, my my great grandson is two years old. He goes to a daycare center uh, up in in Maryland, and they he comes home with report cards. You know, they're they're doing learning things, and it's kind of amazing. And I went to his school once, and my God, there were lots and lots of little black kids there. And I said, do you have a program of subsidizing these? And he said, no. I said, well, how can, how can the, it's a very expensive school, because I'm paying most of them. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and they said, no, it, they said, the people that live here are just loaded with black lawyers, dentists, doctors, what have you, that they, they're wealthy and they can afford it. They're sending their kids here. Those kids are not going to need affirmative action or anything else. It's the ones in Southeast that we need to worry about, and how do we get them so that they will fit in with the rest of society? Bob Hines, 30 seconds. Al, hit it on the nose. Liberals have to recognize that a new way has to be found. And he said the most important thing, as far as I'm concerned, he's going to say, let's talk to the Republicans. Let's work together on this. There are a lot of things that can be done, and this is not, this should not be a partisan thing. This should be something that is good for all the kids, all the places. Did affirmative action, did affirmative action in fact, go against the Constitution, as the Attorney General Shoot said in his arguments before the court? Did it... He says that the state of Michigan and the voters of Michigan voted the way they did because they felt and believed in the constitutional ideal of fair and equal. That, that affirmative action creates an unfair and unequal advantage to those who may not necessarily deserve admission into uh, a public school or university. Do you agree with that? Well, go ahead, Al. It did. Yeah. It did. It did, but it did so because of decades, years, hundreds of years of that very same kind of uh, unequal treatment was reversed onto the minorities in the country. And this was trying to compensate. It was a crude way of doing it. Well, but, absolutely. But, but what was going on before affirmative action was equally yeah. unfair. Uh, and unequal. Far worse. Far, far, well, far worse. I mean, a hundred years ago, I wouldn't be able to vote. My grandmother would have been told, I'm sorry, Irish don't apply. You want to go for, for that type of thing. You, you're looking at the Constitution of the United States that actually talked about how certain people were not actually people. So if we're going to go the strict constructionist route, yeah, there was a problem in that document, and yes, we're addressing it. Well, we're going to keep an eye on that. We're going to go to break here real quick. When we come back, we're going to talk about another Supreme Court ruling that happened earlier this month. Because of all the news that we've been covering, we didn't get to it. But Bob and Al want to talk about this. I'm sure Congressman Michael would probably want to jump in on this conversation. That is the, that is the elimination of caps on political contributions given to us by the Supreme Court. This is Backroom Politics Live from Shelley's Backroom, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. We will be back in two minutes. Stay with us. I'll, I'll bet you couldn't wait. Wow, a little bit of Fats Waller, Lulu back in town, and I, I tell you, when I am back in town, or when any of my friends are back in town, or heck, when we're living here in town, 
We usually find ourselves down at Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C., right across from the National Press Club. Why do we come here? Well, they've got the city's best cigar menu, the most diversified with some of the best-known brands and some that you might even know, but might want to give it a try. Everything from Arturo Fuentes down to Zeno. You can go all the way from your $9 little petite girly flavored cigars all the way up to the Opus X Lost City. They have a cigar for everybody. Mild, medium, strong, heavy. However you want to smoke it, it's available here at Shelly's Back Room. Come in, have Bob, Na, or any one of the girls show you what the right cigar might be for your taste that evening. Again, Shelly's Back Room, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. As Bob likes to put it, it is definitely the place to be. You can tell the mailman not to call I ain't coming home until the fall And again, I might not get back home at all Lula's back in town Shelley's back room, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. Our producer, Brent Sullivan, gets mad if I don't say this. Our phone lines are open. If you have a question for former minority leader Bob Michael or anybody here at the round table, you can call us toll-free, 877-662-3713. Or you can tweet your questions at BackroomPolitik on Twitter. Or you can email justin at BackroomPolitics.org with your questions. Uh, we're going to change gears a little bit, but stay with the Supreme Court rulings. Back earlier part of this month, the Supreme Court ruled uh, that uh, political contributions, the cap on political contributions by individuals and corporations, should be eliminated in a very, very stark and very, very uh, deliberate ruling by the Supreme Court. Basically, it's money's the game now, according to the Supreme Court. Uh, Alan Moore, let me start with you. When, when we, we've seen several election finance rulings come out of this court, it seems to me, at least, just as an observer and somebody being in the political process, in a time when we're talking about the power of money, how money has corrupted the political process in some instances, the court's saying, hey, look, if you've got the money and you want to spend it, 
have at it. That's your money. You can do with it what you want. Are, 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 the, are the Supremes themselves looking at this as an individual right, or are they basically saying it is the right of anybody? It's your money. Do with it as you wish. Yeah, they 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 have, and it's a, it's a thin minority that 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 uh, has been has been deciding this. These are five four decisions, basically saying money equals speech. First Amendment says no limits on speech. That's the basic uh, underlying framework to what they're saying. This most this most recent decision, known as the McCutcheon decision, um, it amuses me for a couple of reasons. One, it's more sky is falling rhetoric. What it does is it says that we're not changing the the limits on what an individual can give to a candidate, which is five fifty two hundred dollars, I think. But that they didn't change that. That's going to be challenge down the road and who knows what will happen to that they didn't change that what they did was they said there's this other limitation that says if you're giving political money you can't give more than 123,000 whatever the number is 123,000 so used to be down in the 30,000 so you can only give to a certain number of people and political parties have a little bigger amount you can give to them and then it was capped and and it said you have one person you really want to give to over here can't do it against the law. So this, this guy with some money said, you know, I've got some other people I'd like to give money to. And I'm going to challenge this limitation for, as for being purely arbitrary and interfering with my First Amendment rights. And the court decided, not surprisingly, because people who were court watchers and watched the, 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 uh, the oral uh, arguments and so on said, Oop, I think we see where this is going. And they said, we're not we're going to lift that $123,000 cap. If somebody wants to give $5,000 to every candidate who comes along, they can do that. And what's so amusing about this, though, is first of all, there aren't that many people who really want to do that. If they if they got a lot of money, they're much more likely to spend it on a particular candidate or candidates as independent spending. They don't want to just spread it all over the place. But there's a group that's particularly pained by this and hard hit. And it's the lobbying community in Washington, D.C. And I'm, I'm guessing that Al uh, and, and, and Leader Michael, although you were sort of in front of the huge money wave, but you were in on the early end of it, you would run into people who you thought would give you money. And they say, oh, Al, I would love to give you some money. Unfortunately, I'm maxed I'm out. I have given this year everything I'm allowed to give. It would be a federal offense for me to give you a dollar. Sorry. Well, those people can't say that anymore, and there's a whole bunch of people in this town who knew they had to give the maximum. Now, now the court, I do want to go back to something you said. The court did not overturn the 1976 ruling and said you can give a maximum of, I think it's $2,600, $2,500 to a federal candidate for each cycle. but and there's often a primer. Right. Right. So but when you when you look at this uh Bob Michael, when when you look at the ruling and then you all of a sudden start talking about the Koch brothers, you start talking about uh Mr. Adelson <laughs> at Las Vegas, you start looking at these people that have a extraordinary amount of free cash that they can spend, they have a political agenda, it According to Justice Roberts in the ruling, it says this intrudes without justification on the citizen's ability 
to exercise the most fundamental First Amendment activities, quote-unquote. Is this, in fact, the First Amendment activity, in your opinion? Well, I'm, de- I'm glad I'm out of politics at this stage because I'm torn by the decision, quite frankly. Why? Well, I just think uh, uh, too much money corrupts. And uh, in some areas, I've seen that happen or indicating that it happened. And uh, it just bothers me that, uh, boy, if that's the only consideration here, and yet I, I don't want to deny those who've got the, the uh, means to do it, the will to do it, to have the freedom to do that. But I, I just cannot, I have to have a reservation about all out uh, uh, loading up on on uh, individual candidates. Well, I just think it's... Uh, Congressman Michael, let, let me go one step back for a second and ask you the question. You've been around politics for a good chunk of your adult right. life. You serve... Well, so much so that when I first ran, I, I ran for Congress for $15,000. Yeah, okay. $15,000 doesn't get you a fundraiser now. Right. But, uh, Congressman, <laughs> in your years here in Washington, your years in Congress... The level of money that's being spent on these races, has money corrupted the political process? To some extent, I think it has. But, uh, you know, you have a hard time really picking out individual cases where, boy, had it not been for the money involved, this would have been a completely different uh, Result. Congressman Al? I think the way it is corrupted is not in the normal sense of buying somebody's vote. It is the amount of time it takes away from a congressman right. doing his job right. to raise all this money. Uh, and I, I think that's uh, distorted things very, very bad. Right. Well, let me add on to that. I mean, when, when, you have, when you have a schedule such that members aren't in the office on Mondays, they fly in maybe Monday evening to show up maybe for Tuesday votes and then skedaddle by 1 p.m. on Thursday. You've got two days out of five, but they're not doing anything. And in the past, you would have members doing that. So they're running home right now to raise as much money as they can because if they don't have it, then somebody's going to challenge them for not having it and think that they're weak. But Bob Hines, you know, Justice Stephen Breyer, and this is according to our friends over at Bloomberg, Justice Stephen Breyer wrote in his dissension uh, that, and he read a summary from the bench, which was surprised a lot of people, but he says, together with Citizens United, the decision to eliminate the cap, quote, eviscerates our nation's campaign finance laws, leaving a remnant incapable of dealing with the grave problems of democratic legitimacy that those laws were intended to resolve. He's basically saying that, look, Money's going to trump the individual vote. Do you agree with Justice Breyer? Well, I will say, I'll put it this way. In a lot of elections, um, it will probably well be a, it will be a deciding factor. Uh, it depends on, on, the, uh, on the issues involved. It depends upon the candidates. It, it, you know, if, if you're really uh, a guy who, or a guy or a gal who is well-known, and, and liked by the by the area you're looking to get the votes from, you know probably you don't you may not have the most money, but you're probably going to win. But what what I see is you're going to get if if, if the if the find if the people who are well known, the candidates who are well known in their communities, 
they're going to be doing pretty darn well, even if they're not the, the people who get the most money. The thing you worry about is some of these candidates are candidates who are just there because there is some money. There is so much money. And they're just maybe a little bit too eager and, and they're willing to you know, do whatever they have to do to get all that money. And they're not the kind of people you really want in the legislative process. But Alan Moore, there are some though that claim that this ruling will help increase transparency. It'll take away some of the power of the super PACs and, and the cover given by super PACs, but it will give the ability for the Koch brothers to say, you bet, we believe in these candidates and here's our slate. Same thing with uh, uh, Tom Steyer, who pumped in $11 million into a super PAC to help Democratic candidates. Here's the thing, we don't know what the outcome will be. The, the, Koch, the, the rich guys are gonna spend independently as much as they want. They will spend tens of millions. 50 million is what Tom Spire of San Francisco says he's got available. The Koch brothers presumably have more than that. They Adel say 11 million. Well, we're, it's just a question of, of, you know, we won't know until we look, till, till we look back and see how much was spent, and some of this money isn't, isn't, even, uh, uh, isn't even reportable. Big money can buy stuff. Big money it, including problems, and what we're seeing now is is attacks on on sources, mysterious sources. Just having a lot of money is not all good for whoever the money is being being spent on. But but the biggest problem is the one that Al talked about, the fact that that members of Congress and senators today, candidates for federal office, unless they're independently wealthy, and there are more and more of them uh, willing to spend their own dough, but increasingly they have to spend time raising money. They got to be on the phone, they have to be at fundraisers, and whenever they're doing those things, they're not doing something else. In the old days, I mean, the leader Michael here talked about running for $15,000 in his first race, and that was probably hard to come by, but it, was, it, it turned out to be enough and then you could go do your job, and then if you were in town a little bit longer, Denise was talking about these short work weeks uh, that, that we've got, shorter and shorter work weeks. And when they're, when they're in town, they're raising money from the in-town folks. When they're back home, they're, they're on the phone. I mean, they're trying to raise money now from all over the country because the needs are so great. It's a mess of a system, but as, as Al pointed out, on the other issue, or, or earlier when we talk about affirmative action, we've got a problem, we're trying to deal with it. We've got this problem, we're trying to deal with it. I think there's a lot of evidence that some of the elements of McCain-Feingold, the great grand uh, election finance reform legislation, has created more problems than it, than it helped, most of all being limiting the ability to give chunks of money to the political parties. The political parties have significantly shrunk as a result and it's directly linked to McCain-Feingold, which I would argue has had a bigger negative impact on elections in this country than the Citizens United case, this McCutcheon case, and so on. We, we can argue that another time. But, but the fact is, whenever we're trying to do something to solve a problem, it is almost inevitable that we have some unintended consequences that may leave us worse off than we started. Look, Congressman Michael, I, I do want to go off of what Alan was saying. It, 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 we've seen the dramatic decrease in the power of the political parties. The RNC and the DNC 
don't have the money-raising capabilities that they used to, nor do they have the political boss capabilities that they used to. And back then, ones argue in the old school regime that say, look, when we had the old party system pre-McCain-Feingold, we had the ability to have the parties choose who the right people were who best suited getting things done in Washington. Now it's specifically agenda-based, as you could say with Steyer and with uh, the Koch brothers. They're saying, look, screw the, the whole party process. You're representing my interests in Congress, and I'm paying for it. Does both King Feingold have a lot of burden to bear in this? Well, I tell you, I can share during my long period of time in politics, you know, since 1956 to the day, what I've seen, that's, I guess, what builds upon my my concern about money and its influence in politics. It's just, it's just gotten to be the dominant thing. And when a member of Congress has to allocate, or a member of the Senate, for example, well, gosh, we're going to spend the next dog on the first year while I'm in, just raising money, just raising money. I'll get around to legislating when I've got time after raising the kind of money that's required yeah. to, to run again. Congressman Al. I, I was in charge of the Democrats' view for two Congresses, uh, the Democrats' effort to try and come up with something to make this better. <clears throat> and I came up with a, a cockamamie scheme that was so complicated. That, <laughs> you know. And I am now convinced, had, had I been able to pass it, and there wasn't a chance it was going to pass, uh, it wouldn't have worked. And I think McCain-Feingold ran into the same problems I did. And every time you run into a problem, you come up with a little screwball way to try to get around it, and then the whole damn thing doesn't work. Uh, the basic problem are twofold. One, the Supreme Court, and it didn't just start doing it, as I understand it, it's, it you can go back where, where they said money equals free speech. I think, I think as long as that is the constitutional thing, we will never solve this problem. I think you need to, to, to amend the Constitution and take that out. I mean, a corporation is a citizen? Really? That's what it says. It says a corporation, a company, is a citizen. That is absolute nonsense, and how the lawyers get around to, to demonstrating that, I have no idea. But that will stand in the way forever of being able to come up with a straightforward, simple way of handling this. But when the other thing, oh, go ahead. The other thing is the public, and here I think the public interest groups, Common Cause, Ralph Nader, and others, have uh, made matters much worse by by fooling the American public. They said that the PACs were the worst thing that ever happened. The PACs, frankly, were the best and most transparent way we have yet come up with to, to raise money. You knew who gave, how much money, to whom, and what interests they represented. That was all there. And, and Fred Wertheimer and Ralph Nader went around dis disrespecting PACs to the point that they convinced the public that they were really bad. <clears throat> Here's what the American public has to understand. 
there were only three ways to raise political money. There aren't thousands. There are three. You can raise it from private sources, which inevitably will have some public issue interests. You can just make candidates pay for it themselves, in which you have a rich Congress, period. Or you can have public financing, which I've always said everybody's for except the incumbents, the challengers, and the public. <laughs> uh, so you, take your pick. You want rich people, you want people be, to take money and, and, and have it transparent, uh, and that's as good as you can do, or you go to public finance. Well, come, come because, oh, I, I, I'm sorry, no, I, go ahead, I go ahead, am go ahead, on, go ahead, my, go ahead. on my perch, but, but <laughs> I, I have talked to so many of my own constituents and others that think that there's some magical thing besides those three, some way you're going to get pure money uh, and it's not going to take any time to raise it, and it's not going to be connected with any special interest. They think it's a, it's not there, friends. It's not there. And you never can't will do, be. It never will be. But yet, uh, Congressman Michael, when met when candidates are interested in running for Congress and they seek the approval and the funding support of organizations like the RNCC, the 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 Triple C. When you look at those organizations, now when candidates go in there, they're asked, the first question they're asked is, how much money do you have? Money makes them viable now, as opposed to back when you were the minority leader, it was, how do you stand on the party platform? That is a very dramatic change in the past 20 years. And, and, and especially since you left Congress, is that trouble you? Well, uh, well, a lot depends on when you're running. Is it the first time or is it after you've been in a while? And there's no question, but when you're first surfacing as a candidate, the party would like to know, have you, have you, got, any, have you got any capacity to raise uh, funds or do you have to have it all financed by the, by the party and somebody else? And uh, what... How much can you contribute to this effort? Uh, because it does take money to uh, to beat your opponent in, in this particular race. But it seems to me, and 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 part of it is from past campaigns. One that I, the, the last one being 2012 that I ran. It, it seems to me that the party has focused more on the money aspect as opposed to the ability to converse the party line in. The, in the campaign and running for Congress. It, that's a dramatic change from where the, the, the naivete I have about politics as, as a stand. Denise Kraft? Okay, I, I guess I come out of North Carolina where one of the biggest races was, I think it was in 1984, the Helms versus Hunt race, the Senate race. It was a million dollars. At that point, nobody had ever spent a million dollars on a senatorial campaign. They were like, what do you mean it's a million dollars? And it just went up from there. If you're looking at a million in one state, or two million, or ten, or twenty million, the party has a right to look at you and say, can you bring in that type of money? Because the party certainly doesn't have the money for you, and it certainly doesn't have it by the magnitude of the other people that they're trying to bring in. So it is a reasonable question. Is, should it trump your, what you decide to say about what your platform is? 
no, but given the amount of money you need to have to, to come into politics, you better be asking that question. There's, no one, there's one race, though, Denise, where an incumbent who, who retired out of Congress told me that his last race, he ran and won on $180,000. Now, granted, he was an incumbent, but he ran and, and won on $180,000. This is in a very poor congressional district. Right. That same district, in an open seat, the incumbent won by raising over a million dollars. You're talking a hundred times yep. what the last race ran for versus the open seat run today. That, to me, seems that, and, and again, I'm a Republican saying this, that to me seems, that, that's crazy. That, that, that makes no sense. It's crazy, but it's reality, and it better accept reality, otherwise you're not going to win. Alan Moore, you're looking at me like I, I've got no, two heads. No, no, I wanted to speak to this issue, this notion that that ever there was some time when, when a party looking at a new candidate would say, How, where do you stand on the party platform? I would say, nonsense. That never would have occurred. What would occur is you'd say, who are you? What are you trying to represent? What do you stand for? What's your history? What's your opponent look like? Is there going to be a primary? You look at all these other things. You don't say, where do you stand on some checklist of issues that's in a party platform? I grossly you, simplified yeah, it. But, yeah, you, know, uh, but you know what I'm saying. Well, I didn't because okay. you repeated it. And, and so I thought it would deserve a little clarification. You, you look at all those things and you look at the money question. You may have the perfect candidate that just fits all the profiles, the right experience. Somebody who says, I have no money. I have no friends with money. I refuse to raise money because I think it's immoral, but I'll be glad to take your money. Then the, the group is going to say, who's next? We need somebody else. I mean, money matters. It matters enormously, and it's frightening and scary. I wanted to say something on this issue of transparency, because I used to sort of naively think, yeah, just make sure everybody tells us where the money comes from. And then we can decide how we feel about that. Well, now we know that's not simple. And the easiest example is the case of a corporate CEO out in California a few weeks ago of a big internet company called Mozilla that, that owns Firefox, one of these big search engines. And, and the, the brand new president of Mozilla who'd come up, he'd been, the, he'd been the number two, he became number one. It turned out that when Proposition 8 was being considered in California, the, the gay marriage issue, he gave $1,000 in support of Proposition 8, which would have defined marriage as only between a man and a woman. That's what, that was his contribution to the issue. He didn't speak on it. He didn't give a lot of money. He gave $1,000. It was reported. And, and that, at the time he gave the money, his view was exactly what President Obama's was. Okay? But because he gave that money back then, uh, some groups came forward and said, don't use Firefox. The president of the parent company gave money to the anti-gay marriage cause, and after one week in the job, he resigned. <laughs> this notion of that the transparency can never do any harm. It's one of the reasons that, that I don't worry much that much about Citizens United. 
corporations don't give the money. They don't want to take the risk of a reaction. Now, rich people give the money, but that was done by Buckley v. Vallejo in 1976. It wasn't done by Citizens United. But transparency, again, it's, it seems so logical and so simple, but it's not that simple. Around the horn, does the recent rulings by the Supreme Court, both Citizens United and the McCutcheon case, does this give the money and the individuals with money more power in the electoral process? Congressman Al. It takes us right back to pre-Watergate. Bob Hines. I agree. Thank Congressman you. Michael. Denise no. Krupp? No? No. Really? Wow. Alan Moore? No, it's marginally. It marginally changes the rules, that's all. Interesting. Okay. We're going to take a break. It's happy hour here at Backroom Politics. It means we're going to order our martinis, our drinks, and get ready for our second hour. <laughs> Joining us for our second hour, again, our special guest, former minority leader out of the great state of Illinois, Bob Michaels. Again, Mr. Minority Leader, thanks for joining us on the second half, too. This is going to be great. We'll come back in four minutes. Stay with us. You know, here on Backroom Politics, you hear us order drinks uh, during happy hour, the second hour of Backroom Politics, live on Blog Talk Radio. But what you don't understand is the quality of the drink that we're getting here at Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. Backroom Politics premier sponsor. Hey, you got Dave Hammerly and the bar crew there at Shelley's Back Room that really know how to pour a drink. Whether it's something simple like my on-air Jack Daniels on the rocks with a splash of water or whether it's something elaborate like what has to be the best martini in the District of Columbia for Congressman Al Swift. Wine selection, scotch selection that will blow your mind. They've got Highland scotches. They've got Island Sky scotches, blended, single malt, anything you want. Port wines to go with that great cigar from the great humidor. Down here at Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C., Come on down, have a drink, and make some new friends. Or heck, just come on down and listen to Backroom Politics on Tuesdays.
that one more once. here live at Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. This is the second hour of the best political talk show you've never heard of, Backroom Politics on Blog Talk Radio. We're going to shift gears a little bit. And by the way, you can join the conversation. You can dial toll free, 877-662-3713. Or you can tweet your questions at, at Backroom Politics on Twitter. Or you can email me, Justin at BackroomPolitics.org with your questions. Joining us for again for our second hour is our special guest, former House Minority Leader, Bob Michael out of the great state of Illinois. Again, Mr. Minority Leader, thank you for joining us. Uh, we're going to switch gears and talk a little bit about XL Pipeline. The uh, XL Pipeline has yet again suffered another political blow. It has now stopped becoming the lobbying behemoth that it once was, and it's now been put back into the hands of a court in Nebraska. The big question is, this has been such a political hot potato here in Washington. You've got the advocates for it, and it's just about everybody in Washington, and the groups against it seem to be the environmentalists. Uh, But the environmentalists have made very strong inroads in getting this thing postponed. Uh, The Obama administration has eluded any solid footing on a position on the subject, and the Republicans can't seem to get the job done. So the big question, I'm going to go to you, uh, Congressman Michael. Why has the Excel pipeline eluded both parties in this? How has this become such a political quagmire? Well, uh, the difference between the parties on on the environment, I think, number one. Number two, the fact that uh, Republicans have been pushing all along for more and more production of uh, energy, energy sources. And if we've got the... If we've got the uh, raw material ourselves, then why don't we why don't we mine it? Why don't we refrain from importing as much as as we do? But yeah. you, you have you have Democrats, including President Obama, who talk about the issue of energy independence. Even some of his biggest backers, the Teamsters, the labor unions, uh, even some of his biggest corporate backers say XL Pipeline works. And this gives us energy independence, but it's not a message that seems the Obama administration can convey into getting the job done. Why is it so elusive? Well, uh, uh, it's all it's all politics, and uh, we got an election coming up, and uh, you wait till after the election is over, mid midterm election, and I'll be I'll I'll be willing to wager that something will happen. Bob Hines, uh, Congressman Michael brings up, uh, I'm I'm sorry, uh, Alan Moore, Congressman Michael brings up a very valid point by saying, you know, the fact that this is a midterm election, uh, did the Obama administration hedge their bets by saying, hey, we don't want to tick off our very liberal, environmental, global warming supporters out in the big money areas of like California and Washington State? At the same time, it doesn't seem like they're making any headway 
with some of their union supporters. I, I always love the, 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 the denials um, that, that this is politically motivated. Um, it's, if it looks like a duck and quacks like a duck, it's a duck. And You're saying it is politically motivated. Absolutely politically motivated. That's not what the Obama administration is saying. That's what I'm saying. That they say, oh, no, 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 this is where we're trying to be respectful of, uh, of, the, of what's going on in Nebraska. They have been stringing this sucker out now for several years. The time we all around this table predicted they would approve it was right after the last presidential election. Yes. We were all pretty sure about that, and we were all pretty wrong. And now, surprise, 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 surprise. The, uh, the Obama administration has missed another opportunity. That <laughs> <laughs> they have been political. I mean, this is a this is a strange one because there are a, a, a weird group of bedfellows on this one because you've got the unions looking at jobs. Um, lots of jobs, thousands of jobs, not just where they're building the pipeline, but making the materials and moving stuff. Um, and they're fit to be tied. And you've got a number of energy state um, uh, Democrats, uh, including a couple of them, who are very vulnerable, not least of all Mary Landry down in Louisiana. They want that gas down in Louisiana so they can refine it. And Mark Begich up in Alaska, who's in a in a in a tight race and in a in a state where being pro energy is being pro winning an election, um, and and they're fit to be tied by this. There's a whole host of other group, uh, Democrats, obviously, who are in states who aren't that vulnerable in terms of energy need. They're not going to get any benefit, and this is a freebie for the environmentalists. Um, and so what, what the administration is trying to do, and I'm not critical of them, this is what politicians do, is they're trying to buy time, trying to say, we haven't made up our minds. We're still looking. We want to get this right. So don't blame us for trying to, trying to get it right. But this is all about the, 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 the politics. Denise Crap. All right, I, I'm going to show my house bias here. As a former house staffer, I, I, I believe that this is actually – should be blamed on the fact that the majority of the folks that should be making these decisions are former Senate staffers. And if there's one thing I dislike as former House staffer, it was a Senate staffer who thought that they could think and think and think for six years, and then they could think for another 12 years. Um, that is hurting this process. You can't think that much. You've got to make a decision. And as a Democrat, I'm going to say, make it. Deal with the ramifications but make it. And that's what's killing this party right now is our refusal to make a decision and then deal with the ramifications. Bob Hines. I think, like everybody else, this is strictly a political decision right now. I mean, when the, when the, uh, when the administration's own department are saying There's, this is the best way to get the oil, uh, it's a lot better than traveling any other way by getting the oil to the, to the, to the uh, refineries. And there's another reason, too, long-term. And if you think about it from a strategic standpoint, look what's going on in, um, in Europe today. It's one of the, the, one of the biggest reasons that, the, uh, that so much of Europe has been reluctant to take a firmer position with respect to Mr. Putin and his activities is because there's so many of those countries get so much energy, gas and oil, from Russia. Now, if we had the pipeline operating already right now, we'd be able to help Europe 
to protect itself against, you know, Russian cutting cutting off the oil if they make a move against them on because of other reasons, for political reasons. The fact of the matter is, the smartest thing we could do is have that pipeline available as soon as possible. And I suspect that once the election is over, the president will probably reluctantly based upon based upon his own administration statement about the value of the of the pipeline that it's in best in the it's it's the best interest of the United States but i think a lot of i think a lot of strategic thinkers are probably saying it would be a good idea to have that have that pipeline just because keep russia in place well the ceo of transcanada corp which is going to be the operator and owner of the xl pipeline russ gerling said according to our friends at Reuters, said, quote, the United States will continue to rely on suspect and aggressive foreign leaders for the 8 to 9 million barrels of oil that is imported every day by this country. Uh, although he's saying that, and our biggest importer is Canada, I don't think that uh, Stephen Harper is either aggressive or suspect, in our opinion, Congressman Al. <laughs> I... Something that has always bothered me about the environmentalists and energy, particularly energy, they are against every way to produce energy that exists now. They're against dams because of fish, they're against, you know, on down the line. Now, they used to be for wind power before that was technologically possible. Now it's technologically possible. Oh, but it kills birds. Yeah. <laughs> so they're not they're not for wind power anymore. They're always for some way of making energy that is not yet technologically feasible. Uh, it seems to me that I would pay a lot more attention to the environmentalists if they were bringing anything to the table except complaints. And they're they're not on this issue. I I think that uh, I, I agree with everybody else at the table that uh, the president's probably to do this after the election, uh, and I have come to the point that uh, he should. Well, and I I can tell you. It means crap. I believe in the pipeline. I think it's a good decision, but I have some concerns about the agency that does oversight over it, and that stems from the, um, the pipeline and hazardous uh, safety materials administration. They do not have the number of individuals they need to do proper oversight, and some of the oversight they have done has been problematic. The other entity that's going to create a and this is going to be more of an inside, food, um, inside baseball, is rail. Rail is benefiting right now because there hasn't been a pipeline, because they're yeah. beginning to say, we can you know, reroute it and move it. So rail is not going to be saying, yippee, let's go make that pipeline. But the reason pipeline is going to trump rail is rail has had so many problems. And Correct. when you start seeing the tension right now between the, the American Chemistry Council and it was API, API, yeah, and American Petroleum Institute, and, and you've got some of the, the the tension that's going on right now, that is going to be the reason the pipeline folks I think are going to win. I would support the pipeline with the caveat that once it reaches Louisiana, that more U.S. vessels. Are, will be used to export it. We're about to enter a really crazy period. Uh, about three years ago, 
we released the Strategic Petroleum Reserve, and we, re and we did a Jones Act waiver because we said there weren't enough Jones Act vessels to move it. We're about to head into that same area because there are not enough Jones Act vessels to move the petroleum that's going to come in through Louisiana as well as through uh, Houston. I want, to, I want to jump in here real quick. Uh, CNN is right now reporting breaking news on two fronts in the Ukrainian situation. The first break, piece of breaking news is CNN's reporting that the U.S. military is sending paratroopers into Poland, uh, which is a dramatic increase of military standing into the region. At the same time, CNN is also reporting that tortured bodies have been found in Ukraine. We're still getting details on that, but that is a major escalation, Congressman Michael, in a very tense situation out in Ukraine. You've obviously been monitoring this, Congressman. Does the situation in Ukraine, does this bring up old Cold War vibes to well, you? Not naturally, because uh, although Putin's right, you know, at one time uh, that, that was Russian territory, and so it's kind of unnatural for them. But uh, a lot of things have happened since the Cold War supposedly ended at one one time, and and uh, Ukraine became uh, much more of a westernly or oriented, uh, and, and we'd like to encourage it. Alan Moore, this is a dramatic increase in the military saber rattling that's going on between Moscow and Washington, sending paratroopers into Poland. That's a pretty decisive stand that the State Department, the White House, and DOD is taking. Is, is uh, maybe. I mean, I paratroopers in Poland. The issue is over there in the Ukraine, right? So, what's the point in Poland? Is this? And we don't know. I'm sure there is a point. There have been a lot of people who've said, um, "Mr. Mr. President, what the heck are we doing? We're 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 we're, we're saber rattling again," including just last week when uh, when Secretary of State uh, John Kerry uh, said. Okay, we've got this little agreement. You're going to get you're going to going to get people out of these occupied occupied buildings in uh, in eastern Ukraine. Now, if they don't get out of those buildings, there are going to be serious consequences. Is we can argue whether that's a pink line, a red line, a no line, or something. It sounds a lot like what kind of stuff we're hearing without specificity. The guys are still occupying the buildings. Nothing's happened. Maybe putting some paratroopers, how many? 50? 500? 5,000? I mean, we don't know the details. Right. In Poland, now what, what, what a number of people have been, have been, have been calling for is, is conversations with the current governing authority in Ukraine, in Kiev, um, where the vice president, Biden, is today, and saying, defensive weapons, what would you need? Give us a list and at least and not do this publicly not have a big you know a photo op but but let the the russians know so the argument goes that we're at least in conversations about some anti-tank anti-tank weapons for example some automatic weapons um maybe a few mortars not things that are going to blow american planes out of the sky uh a la uh, uh, what, what, we, what we did with uh, the Mujahideen in Afghanistan many years ago, but 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 we have to be doing something, and maybe this is uh, the beginning of something. The, the, the beginning of something, but but I don't know enough. Congressman Al, I just want to compliment Alan on on being capable of <coughs> of 
both using faint praise and faint criticism. That <laughs> 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 always ends up somehow being against Very, Obama. Yeah, <laughs> I know, shocking. But Congressman Al, it does raise the question. He's though. a target-rich opportunity. <laughs> these days, but, it does, but Congressman Al, it does raise the question. You know, we've seen the Obama administration and, and his Department of Defense and the State Department take lines of the sand in Syria, in Libya. Uh, we've taking weird, we've taken weird diplomatic ties in the beginning of the Chechen front. So the question now becomes is, with that being the case, does the Obama administration literally have the, the stroke now to put paratroopers in Poland and have Putin take notice? Well, it depends on what they do with those troops. Just having them there, and I don't know how many think, there are, and how many there are. I, 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 I suspect that without more information, uh, Putin is not uh, going to lose any sleep over this. But yeah. what do we plan to do with them? And, uh, and what is the American public's reaction going to be if we really are serious and we're going to, and we start getting into military action in yet another place in the world? You know, I think I've got it. More. I think I've got it. We've said no boots on the ground, right? We've made it very clear. Those paratroopers are going to float around, but they're not going to land. No boots on the ground, but they're wearing tennis shoes. They could so we're having tennis shoes on the ground. Also right. and take off their shoes. Yeah, I was... <laughs> right, but I, okay, I want to get... Denise Kraft. You know, you guys know me. I'm, I'm the daughter of, wife of, active duty member myself. I mean, I have to feel a lot of empathy right now. I mean, it looks like it's the 173rd Airborne Brigade that's about to go out. These are men and women who thought that they were going to be home next week. And I can tell you, and Justin, you've worn the uniform just like I did, this is not something that they want to go into. I mean, they grew up hearing their grandparents' stories about World War II. That was a four-year... we got a veteran. Right I was going to say, we, yeah. That was, you know, that was four years. This is not, if we do this, this is not four years. Iraq and Afghanistan was more than ten. This is going to get nasty, it's going to get dirty, and my God, I am so sorry for this. Well, Congressman Michael, as a, as a former veteran yourself, proudly serving in, in the, in the uh, U.S. Army, as you did, yep. uh, when you look, and as a member of Congress, when you look at the actions that Secretary Hagel is taking in response to some of the offensive maneuvers that Vladimir Putin has taken, are, are you confident that we're sending the right message into the region, and is is what we're doing the right aspect? I don't think, quite frankly, the overall policy has been one with that's really very coherent, uh, and uh, it's got this little pieces here and there, and then this idea of sending paratroopers to Poland, yeah, maybe only battalion strength, and, and uh, which is kind of nonsensical. It's just symbolic. And uh, I, uh, I have some real, uh, real problems with the way the administration, frankly, has addressed itself to the, the problem. Period. You know, if you're going to, if you're going to defend uh, and uh, and and support Ukraine, then do it. But don't just have 
know. But but Congressman, you'd also think that somebody who served and came up, you know, who was an enlisted member of the military, uh, served on the front lines as somebody Chuck Hagel did, would understand this and at least take the GI's view of my actions have ramifications down to the lowest private, the lowest seaman, the lowest airman, and. That's not a message that the Obama administration is getting out right now. Well, I don't know that, uh, that Hagel's got all the, while well, he's Secretary of Defense, whether or not he's the, the authority when it comes to the, the key decisions that have to be made. Still, still going to be Obama making the decisions. And, Good and, point. Uh, Hagel's got to be under, under, under wraps to some degree. Bob Hines? From my standpoint, I would like to see the president or the vice president very you know, quietly say to Mr. Putin, look, if you don't get all your guys who are in uniforms with no insignias on, if you don't get them out of Ukraine in the next two weeks, this is what we are going to do. And I'm not talking about troops. I'm talking about some financial structures. You know, the, the, the economy of, of Russia is right now in trouble. There's a great article today in the paper about some of the problems they're, they're, they're having, and financial and fiscal problems, their banking problems. They need help. If it wasn't for their oil and gas, they'd be in a disaster. I would like to see some strong statements about we are going to do this and that with respect to financial and, 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 and structures. We can take a, take a real hard line and make Russia understand that we are serious. We have not done that yet. We but do we have the credibility to do so? Well, if we did it, we'd have credibility, yeah, wouldn't we? Congressman right. Al, yeah. what are we doing? I agree with Bob, and I agree with his last statement. If we did something, yeah. it, we would yeah. gain credibility. The, the, the problem of drawing red lines that you don't pay any attention to putting, doesn't build your credibility. But, but, but Alan Moore, we talked about do something. What is that something? Well, I, I mentioned before the, the, the discussions with possibly giving some defensive arms. What Bob is talking about is sanctions relating to financial institutions, expanding conceivably the sanctions against particularly particular Russian individuals. Part of the one of the challenges that the administration has, that we've acknowledged before, is we'd like to not go alone with this. We would like to have European partners where the, where the geographic connection, the physical connection, the economic interdependency is far greater than it is for us. We can, if, we try to, if we try to go alone um, with, with, with sanctions on financial institutions, that all that may do is say, put a lot of pressure on London uh, and the Brits, and they're saying, well, we're not prepared to do that yet. So the Russians say, well, fine, we're just going to continue to do what we're doing in, in London. It's, it's, it, there are no free lunches here because, as we've acknowledged, Europe is physically, physically dependent on energy from Russia, oil and, in particular, natural gas, um, and that ties their hands and it reduces our options. Having said that, if we're going to talk about consequences, there need to be some consequences that are more than just little slaps on the uh, on the wrist, and, and that's why some some people a lot smarter than me on this stuff are talking about conversations about about giving them defensive weapons. Hold, hold that thought. 
we're going to continue the discussion on the breaking news coming out of uh, the Department of Defense. Uh, the, the news is that the Department of Defense has announced that they will be sending paratroopers over to Poland. At the same time, breaking news coming out of the Ukraine, where the Ukrainian government is now stating that they have found tortured bodies, including a politician that has been tortured in the Ukraine. We're going to be talking about that when we come back. We're going to take a break. We'll be back in two minutes. This is Backroom Politics on Blog Talk Radio Live from Shelley's Backroom in Washington, D.C., We'll be back. Thanks. You know, you hear us talk about Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. It's being the place to be. America's premier cigar tavern, place to make new friends or visit old friends, or even have a lively political discussion like we do here on Backroom Politics. But what you may not know... Shelly's is the place for private parties. Shelly's Back Room is available to host events for groups of 10 to 250. From cocktail receptions to sit-down dinners, Shelly's can provide custom menu options to suit your needs and budget. Although Shelly's is a smoke-friendly environment, Shelly's can make accommodations for non-smokers based on the side of your party, but heck, why would you want to? With a cigar menu like they have here, why would you even consider going smoke-free? Event pricing varies based on the time of the day of the week chosen for your event. For more information on private parties at Shelley's Back Room, go to www.shelleysbackroom.com slash private-party. Shelley's Back Room, the place to be, as Bob likes to say it. It's also a place for private parties. And we're back here live at Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. This is the best political talk show you've never heard of. It's Backroom Politics on Blog Talk Radio. Uh, we're continuing quick discussion on the uh, escalation of U.S. presence in the Baltics. Uh, CNN is reporting that the Department of Defense has committed to sending paratroopers into the region, into Poland and the Baltics. A uh, story that we are watching right now coming out of Voice of America, according to Voice of America, quote, the United States is sending about 600 paratroopers to Poland and the Baltic states in an expansion meant to underscore its commitment to NATO allies as a result of the escalating tensions in the Ukraine. Further quoting uh, Voice of America, quote, Pentagon spokesperson Rear Admiral 
John Kirby said 150 paratroopers based in Italy will arrive Wednesday in Poland. He said another 450 paratroopers will be deployed to Latvia, Estonia, and Lithuania. The bilateral exercises will last about a month. He said new troops will then rotate in for fresh exercises throughout the rest of the year. Kirby said, according to Voice of America, placing troops on the ground is more than a symbolic gesture. He called for Russia to, quote, remove its forces from the border with Ukraine and respect Ukrainian sovereignty. Admiral Kirby has pretty much come out and said, this is not symbolic. We're gearing up. You want to go head-to-head, Russia, bring it on. That's a very definitive statement, Bob Hines, uh, by Admiral Kirby in the Defense Department. I'm glad. I'm, you know... Well, when they talk about those numbers, that's company strength to each co- country. No. Right. You know, that's uh, it's no. another symbolic kind of thing. The, the important thing there, it is symbolic, but the important thing there is if they're on the border and the Russians start coming in on the bo- over the border, then you're going to have a firefight. And somebody's going to get killed, and that's going to be a, that's going to be the that's going to be the bottom line. The Russians do not, I am sure, want to get in a fight. But Congress, uh, Congressman Michael, you said that this is in fact company strength, not battalion strength. Right. Uh, these are very tactical forces. When they forces. broke us down to a hundred and some going to each company, hundred fifty each country, right? And but all collectively, <laughs> you got a total of about a battalion <laughs> strength. Uh, battalion you really strength. never think of any military action less than a regimental uh, uh, level and a combat, regimented combat team, you know. But when, when, you hear, when you hear Admiral Kirby saying, look, this is not symbolic, we want Russia to move, does this continue the rhetorical saber rattling coming out of Washington and the bad policies of the Obama administration, or are they trying to send a message to Moscow? I don't know that the Russians are going to accept that, it's real being very bona fide, just making a, a statement that that's really what it is when it isn't. <laughs> <laughs> what, in, what in your mind should Obama do, in your opinion, as far as getting Moscow's and Vladimir Putin's attention? Well, the whole, the whole policy from the very beginning just seemed to have little uh, uh, coordination, you know, and... Uh, the fact that uh, uh, when the Russians were there on, in uh, the eastern part of uh, Ukraine, you know, and there was, it, it just seemed to be acceptable to uh, the administration. No, that isn't really Ukraine. That's that's just the uh, part of old Russia. Yeah. Right. In, in, in your view, so the, the lines are blurred and. I mean, I mean, in your view, there, there are many that say that, you know, the, the United States should have just stayed out of it, that, in fact, that the Soviets were, in fact, or well, the Russians... We've really got to show Ukraine to some degree that we're <laughs> supportive of them. We like to see them Western-oriented, but uh, it hasn't been all that, uh, that strict. But, but some say that the, the Russians, all the Russians were doing, were defending a very, a very strategic base that they had in that part of the Ukraine for many decades. Yeah. It's their only warm water port that they have a very strategic fleet that's essential. And from what we've heard of what the Ukrainians have by way of a military, which is not very much right. or very strong, 
why we haven't gained anything. Should, I mean, the, uh, should the U.S. have really got gained the the, the uh, superior hand? Well, should the U.S. have stayed out of this? Excuse me. Should the U.S. have stayed out of this? Well, you're going to talk one line and act in another way, or you're going to going to have a coordinated policy that makes sense. All, all I, I Congressman Al, I kind of wondered what would have happened had Obama recognized Russia's legitimate concern about the seaport that they obviously need and had said to Putin, you know, we understand that and we will support you in seeing that that remains open to your use and so forth, da 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 In other words, saying we're supporting you but not supporting an invasion. We'll just see that they don't take the, that your ability to use that port away. And that would be a gesture toward him that would give up very little of, of us. Yeah. And, 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 and it would have been giving him a chance to respond in some fashion. Denise Krapp. I mean, I hate to say from the international point, but we signed agreements with Ukraine back in the early 90s after the fall of the Soviet Union. Those agreements were supposed to trigger certain actions. If we are now saying we are not going to respond to those international agreements, we're losing faith on the international side with Ukraine. But we're also going to be having problems with Latvia, Lithuania, Estonia, and Poland because they have provided a significant number of troops in the Iraq and Afghanistan conflict. We asked, they deployed, they died. So if we go and say, by the way, the Russians are coming through the Ukraine and we're just going to stand back here on this side of the pond, I don't think our allies are going to be really thrilled with us, nor do I think that the next international conflict that comes up and we say we need it to be international, that they're going to ante up some bodies. Alan Moore? You know, many, many have charged President George W. Bush with looking for an excuse to go into Iraq, into Iraq and finding one. We can argue about the evidence and, and, and so on. Um, but I was thinking about that when thinking about Putin, who has said on more than one occasion that the worst thing that ever that happened to, the, to, to, to Russia was the breakup of the former Soviet Union. And arguably, we shouldn't then be surprised that he would be looking for ways to put it back together. And when given a little excuse on something that was not that predictable, remember how this started. It was in Kiev when the when the Russian-backed, controversial president, who looked like he was warming up to the European Union, suddenly shifted and said, you know, I think closer ties with Russia make a lot more sense. And suddenly there are tens of thousands of people in the streets and troops open up on the, the, the demonstrators and a couple hundred are killed and rioting breaks out, and the president, in, instead of trying to cut some kind of an agreement to buy some time and some peace, cuts the deal and disappears. And suddenly, there's nobody in charge in Kiev. And Putin, he didn't, there's no evidence that he was trying to orchestrate all of that. But when he saw the opportunity, he thought, this is what I've been waiting for. I'm going into Crimea. Because 
it's mostly Russian. We have a seaport there, and I've been waiting for my chance. He's still got supposedly 40,000 troops. We've got 600 paratroopers in four countries. He's got 40,000 troops on the eastern border of the Ukraine. That's a force that can do something. Um, but what could we have done differently? Who knows? I don't, I don't think this was part of a long-range plan. It's not that surprising with Putin, and one could argue whether we, we, we had a good read on him and what, was, what he was capable of, but I don't, I, don't think it was hard. I don't think it was an easy matter or a missed uh, intelligence opportunity not to see this particular chain of events because no one was predicting it. Bob Hines? As far as I'm concerned, <laughs> the important thing is, to me, that the United States stands up for its allies in NATO, stands up for its, its, its beliefs, and lets Putin know that he, he, you know, if he'll stand down and get out of uh, Ukraine, it's okay, and we'll leave it the way it is. You got, you got the Crimea, and that's okay. And I think Al is right. I mean, you can understand how the Russians feel particularly strong about that, because they've got to have some place to put their ships and service them, and that's the only place they can possibly do it in the Crimea. You can understand that from the power standpoint, from their, from their view. But the fact of the matter is, anything else that they do is, is, is going to be inappropriate, and we're going to stop it. But Congress, Congressman Michael, Vladimir Putin over the weekend had a huge, every year he does this question and answer marathon on Russian media, and he had several thousand people in Crimea uh, able to ask the questions to that Vladimir Putin, and it, it almost seems like there's a, a very set message, if you listen to Putin's responses, look, we are, we are protecting our national interests. We don't want to invade the Ukraine. Our intentions are not to invade the Ukraine, but we're going to protect those Russian nationals and those of Russian, of Russian ethnic origin. That's all we're doing, not unlike any other major superpower would do in their own right. Why do we see that as being a mixed message coming out of Moscow? Well, I don't... Uh I'm, I'm confused myself uh, to try and determine what the administration re really feeling is because uh, I guess those of us who've seen this develop over a period of time, and uh, I'm talking about 30, 40 years, why you, you have to ask the question. And, uh, Bob Hines. I don't think that uh, the government in Kiev has done anything to deny rights to the Russian uh, Russian population of eastern uh, Ukraine. I think what's going on there is an is a uh, organized uh, uprising by Russian soldiers who don't have uniforms on with, with insignia, and they are the ones who are causing the trouble. Denise Kraft. All right, I'm going to put a day out. May first. That's May Day. I'm really curious to see what happens in 10 days from now and who holds what parade and how they hold it. Because, because you've got it coming and what will they start converging on the old 
USSR. I mean, they're not going to get all of them. Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania are going to beg off. But you have 12 others. And what happens on May 1st? Let's just put that one out there. But, but Alan... Good. But, we'll, we'll watch. Uh, no, that's, that's a great point. But Alan Moore, you know, it, it, it seems to me that when the Russians said we're moving to Crimea only because we have to protect the Russians, when they say, well, they really didn't need protecting, there's no question that the people who took power in Kiev after the ouster of the former president are very nationalistic. Some say very uh, almost Nazi-like in their thoughts and their mentality and how nationalistic they are. Does that pose a security question to Putin and is he justified? You know, it, it, it seems like a real stretch that it's justified on the basis that he argues. What seems a lot clearer is that this is really important to him and has eaten at him and some of the people around him. And he's gone in. He's, he's just taken Crimea with a bogus election. And nothing happened. Now... Does he want all of the Ukraine? Not really. In fact, he's even sort of taunting the West, saying, "Yeah, you can have you yeah. guys. You guys can put your billions in to bail it out, but I'm protecting my Russians over here on the Eastern Front." That's what so frightens the other bordering countries, particularly the Baltics, um, Moldova on the other side of Ukraine. Um, because they have large ethnic Russian populations too. Well, if you can get away with with grabbing land from other countries on the basis of an ethnic mix, talk about affirmative action. Wow. Um, <laughs> this, 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 this is Putin's own special version. Did you um, just call this affirmative action? This is this is this is Putin's of definition of affirmative action, you bet. I'm, well, a, I'm, well, I'm, I'm a little bit concerned if there's a group of Russians in some place around in this country, we may have Mr. Putin coming over here. Have, have, <laughs> you, have you been to certain parts of Brooklyn? Yeah. Good Lord. Uh, well, we're going we're gonna to be monitoring this as, as well as the developments coming out of Kiev and, and out of the Pentagon, and we'll probably be reporting on it next week. Uh, but I, I would be remiss. I, I, I want to spend a couple of minutes, if I can, uh, with, with uh, our former minority leader. And, and Congressman, you spent many, many decades as a member of Congress. Uh, and we did an interview uh, not too long ago with Congressman John Dingell, the dean of the House uh -huh. now. Um, and, and Congressman Dingell made it a point of saying that this House of Representatives that he sits in now has no idea of how dysfunctional it is and how big a quagmire it's created. When you look at the current state of Congress, particularly the House of Representatives where you serve, do you see them being accomplishing or being effective in what they're supposed to be doing? Or well, they're, they're obviously not doing that. As a matter of fact, it's embarrassing for me sometimes to respond that I was once a member of that body. <laughs> and I thought, my gosh, uh, but, you know, we were really, we, I, all my 38 years were as a member of the minority. 
but I always felt like I was playing some role. I wasn't just the, uh, now there'd be some of our more militants, I guess, who'd argue with that and say, well, we don't have enough to say. Well, you still got to recognize in the minority, but there are times when you can really make your, your uh, influence felt. And I always got along very famously with Tip. We'd go at it, hammer and tongs, verbally, during the office hours. After it was all over, we'd go back to drink, back at the office, have a pop, and play gin rummy or one thing or another. Tom Foley, well, Tom was the one who suggested, listen, Bob, in order to get together all that much better, why don't we alternate our leadership meetings? We'll meet in your office one week, my office the other week. Something unprecedented. But it was the, the willingness of, of, of men to get together, well, women too for that matter, but uh, uh, to get something done. I, I, I came to Congress to try and make it work. I didn't, that unfortunately, there's just too big a body in my party yet who came to the Congress with no uh, inclination toward working to get things done but just trashing, uh, trashing uh, the government. Did, did did the Tea Party hurt the Republican Party, or were they a voice? Well, sure, it did. Really, uh, in long-lasting lives. Uh, oh, it maybe gave us gave us some support, uh, uh, vote-wise, but uh, it hasn't turned out over the long haul to be beneficial. This idea of shutting down the government is just a dumb idea again. They had to learn that all that time that has been lost going through those motions, and uh, I, I, I've been very discouraged and this with uh, how things have been going. What What do we need to do to change the mentality of Congress well, to stop being the antagonistic body that it is and becoming the productive body? of governing the U.S.? Well, I don't know that it really changes significantly until American people get so fed up with it that they decide we're going we're gonna to make a change here by who we elect to, to, to represent us. Uh, well, uh, I like it, that but because I think we too often let the voters off. You know, when they say they're, they're all idiots. Well, who elected them? Right. They didn't appoint themselves. You know. Uh, you know, it's they're not all idiots. You know, it's amazing when you see polls that say, you know, 90% uh, of the people think their congressman is wonderful, and 1% of the people <laughs> think the Congress is terrible. You can't have it both ways. But, but Alan Moore? Yeah, actually, it, 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 it used to be that there would be a huge, there would be a, a, a majority, they would say, throw most of them out, but then a strong majority would say, but keep our guy. Yeah, that's pretty much changed. Now you've got a big majority that says, we'd be better off tossing them all, <laughs> and, and it's the rare current member who gets more than even a 50% approval rating. There's a lot of this pox on them all that's out there in the land. Having said that, as Al says, does that mean they'll vote? Does that mean they'll get put up a penny? Do they'll do, do they'll they'll give it a shot? Eh. When push comes to shove, will they vote for the name they recognized or some other name that means nothing to them? Or will they vote for a party? 
Um, there's a lot of people calling themselves independents, but they still typically have a have a leaning. Does, well, Congressman Michael, when 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 we look at the Republican Party and even the Democratic Party as a whole, there are many that claim that what both parties need are the more moderate voices, the more cognizant voices in elected office in Congress, i.e., uh, the relationship that Tip O'Neill had with Ronald Reagan, the relationship that you as minority leader had with your then speaker Tip O'Neill. Uh, it seems that there was a more moderate, a more, uh, a, a more of an effort to compromise as opposed to now. Is, is, is that something that Congress can hear and will they even take heed well, of that warning? Of course, warning? even the words, you know, moderate, they'll, they'll condemn me there'll be those who will condemn me uh, if I'm pictured as a moderate. And I thought, oh, I'm not a moderate, I'm conservative as I ever was, but I'm willing to talk to the other side. And you've got to be willing to accept the fact that you're both divergent feelings and you're trying to come together. When, yeah? when, did, when did the moderate moniker become a detriment in Congress? Uh, well, I guess it's, uh, <laughs> I guess it, it's defined probably in many quarters as just being really not for much, not for very much. It's just a kind of a middle of the road uh, uh, position, uh, which which doesn't really make points up there in the Congress. But many in the political circles today call, you know, if you're seen as somebody who will talk to somebody on the other end of the aisle to, to strike a deal, you're immediately tagged with terms like moderate. And in our party, rhino, Republican in name only. Uh, it, it seems that the demagoguery has taken over versus the practical sense of the operation of Congress. Is that accurate? I think that's probably true. I, uh, we just got to educate the American public, I guess. To Congressman Al. Let me just add one more thing. And I totally agree with Bob about the electorate bears some responsibility for right. who they send. But also, partly because you're raising so much money, partly because both parties' leaderships try to keep their, the, the, in, the newcomers from associating too much with the newcomers of the other party. The, the fact is, people up there don't know each other anymore. Right. And if you don't know somebody, you can't trust them. And if you can't trust them, you're not going to compromise with them. So there really needs to be, on the part of, of, of leadership of both parties, and I don't know that the willingness is there uh, in both parties, to provide means by which members, particularly new members, can get to know each other as individuals. It's very hard to say really nasty things about somebody you disagree with, but whom you like, Absolutely. play golf with, and what have you. Uh, and that's not going on now. Well, Tom Foley and I tried uh, 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 in our, our early getting together to uh, encourage members to, to, to do that. And Rain LaHood and uh, mm -hmm. who was on the other side. Uh, that he got together with, and they wanted, and they just felt like having uh, retreats with both parties and husbands and wives. Uh, you know, they they they've got to play a part. Boy, my wife play a big 
role in my and who I was and how I was perceived by my other fellow mem, uh, members. Uh, it's uh, you're you're so right now that if you get to know one another, or if you've, you've sat down and just had a drink with them, or just had a, one dinner with them, why that that adjective becomes a lot less onerous. Oh, when if you want to be critical, you know. Well, and I just now foreign foreign travel, which is uh, very much disliked by the public and is very badly reported right. by the news media. You're talking about the old Codells. The Codells. <laughs> I I met and made friends with Republicans more on those Codells that Same the Dingle read than anywhere else. And I remember that the very first time I let a dingle let me as a very freshman lead the uh, debate on public broadcasting's authorization. And I'm a big public broadcaster. Well, Jim Broyhill allowed uh, Mike Oxley to do the same thing. He led the Republican side. And I hated it. I hated it. Here's this guy I don't know who's over there trying to defeat what I think is a terribly important thing. And so I hated him for quite a while until we went on a Codell together. I now believe that anybody that doesn't like Mike Oxley is crazy. (laughs) And he and I eventually got a, 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 a very complicated and controversial bill on Superfund out of committee 42 zip. Uh-huh. That doesn't happen if either of you are sticking your thumb in the other guy's eye. Right. Well, Mr. Minority Leader, we've got uh, about three minutes left in the show. Last question is, do you ever see or do you see figures in Congress right now that can help bring us back to the way it was versus the way it currently is? Well, there are few and far between. I guess I have to characterize it that way, and that's the problem. That but those few, we've got to encourage them as much as we possibly can to enlarge enlarge that number. It's got to come from within, and uh, uh, you just well. And as a Democrat, I will say that I think John Boehner is perfectly capable of doing that if his caucus, you call it a different thing, but if if the caucus will relax a little bit yeah. and let him lead. Right. He's a good leader. He's a, he is a he's a, a, a proven compromiser. I mean, the education bill of George Bush we got through with Teddy Kennedy for crying out loud. And so he can do this if he does. If if, he, if they take the nail out of his foot that's nailed to the floor, so that he can he can act, practice. Alan Moore. Alan Moore, real quick, minute thirty left. Yeah. I, I don't think we'll ever go back to how we once were. We'll find a new normal, a new normal with different people. I'm I, I'm sad to reflect though on the fact that what it might take is some sort of economic or international crisis to drive us together. Um, the, the divisions have become so significant. Um, the 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 Tea Party's all powerful because in 2007. The economy went to hell, and people's lives were destroyed, and they were angry. And it's going to take a while to roll roll through that. But I think, sadly, it might take some kind of major crisis. 
And given our inability to make decisions on economic things, we may be headed for a domestic one. Uh, maybe. Uh, first, I want to take special time and say thank you very much, former minority leader, the great Republican leader, uh, Bob Michael. Thank you for joining us. We hope you'll come back and join us again soon. This has been a great honor. But on behalf of Congressman Al Swift, Bob Hines, Denise Kreft, Alan Moore, our producer up in Syracuse, Brent Sullivan, and I am your moderator, Justin Russell. We'll be back next week live from Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital. Bob? The place to be is Shelley's Back Room. It's the greatest place to get a good political knowledge of what's going on. We'll see you next week. Thanks for joining us. Bye-bye.